0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the B-Team Bible Study. I'm your host, Kristen Noop. Okay, so we put a pin in our discussion last week right after the initial drama of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit showed up in a visceral, miraculous way and people are talking. But the day is just beginning. It's only 9 a.m. So what happens next? Well, Peter finds his nerve again and we have a second recorded Spirit-empowered speech. The man who denied even knowing Jesus three times is no longer afraid to claim him as Lord and starts dropping truth bombs left and right, and the crowd goes wild. We are about to hear the first evangelistic sermon of the New Testament, as, and as you will see, it was wildly successful. The church grows like 2,500% that day, if I did math, the percentages are always hard for me, from 120 believers to over 3,000. And you will see that Peter does not shy away from laying out the incriminating details about the actions of his fellow countrymen as it relates to Jesus. But he contrasts those actions with the astonishing grace available to them. It's a longer passage this time, Acts 2 chapter uh, verses 14 through 41. So if you have a Bible handy, you might prefer following along. So go ahead and hit pause. I'll be right here. Welcome back. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41, reading from the New Living Translation. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. This was not a boozy brunch, y'all. Verse 16. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. Okay, then he's going to quote from the Old Testament, from Joel chapter 2. He says in verse 17, "...in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams." Okay, he ends quoting Joel, and he goes back to addressing the crowd directly in his own words. Verse 22. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus, the Nazarene, by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him, and him being Jesus, so now... Uh, Peter is going to quote King David here from Psalm 16, picking up in middle of verse 25. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your holy one to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will find, excuse me, you will fill me with the joy of your presence. End quote. Again, back to addressing the crowd, interpreting this ancient reflection in light of Jesus, picking up in verse 29. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on the throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him, the Messiah, among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended to heaven, yet he said, quoting Psalm 110, the Lord, meaning God the Father, said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. End quote verse 36. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. The more I read Peter's speech and reflect on it, the more I see what a masterpiece it is. But first up, I just want to address all of these quotes Peter is making. He's quoting scripture, Old Testament scripture. The prophet Joel from, it's, it's hard to nail down the date of Joel precisely. Scholars are, are kind of all over the place, but let's just say 7th or 8th century B.C., so several hundred years ago. And he quotes the illustrious, revered, renowned King David, who reigned over Israel around 1000 B.C., Uh, quoting from psalm 16 and 110. Peter is quoting from the hebrew scriptures the bible for lack of a better word that he had access to the bible that Jesus had access to it wasn't until a few hundred years later that the early church would codify the circulating letters of Peter Paul and John and others or the accounts of Jesus life penned by Luke and Matthew and Mark into what we now consider the new testament or the second testament with the old testament or more accurately the first testament of God's story. Joel is what we call a minor prophet. Minor meaning really the length of the text. Uh, Joel is only three chapters long, and this is contrasted with major prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah, from which we have much lengthier books that have dozens of chapters there are 12 minor prophetic books in the old testament and five major prophetic books and for the most part they're all dated around 7th or 8th century bc with a few exceptions as a testimony of god trying to get israel and judah's attention before disaster would strike for their lack of repentance their lack of humility their failure to be the light unto the nations who lived out God's shalom vision as he so desired for them. Again, I really need to do a background story podcast episode. Um, I just need to work on that. Okay, so for a very helpful, uh, visually stimulating overview of what Joel was all about, or really any book of the Bible, including Acts, do a search for The Bible Project and check out their videos. In five or ten minutes, these brilliant guys will overview an entire book of the Bible for you, including um, a poster that you can download or order for visual reference. I'll put a link to this in the show notes. Okay, why Joel? What is possibly significant about Peter citing this particular scripture from Joel, the one about prophecy and visions, at this moment on Pentecost Sunday? It further underscores the historical and cosmic significance of this miraculous outpouring of the Spirit. The NIV application commentary on this section of Acts notes that there was a generally held belief that when the last of the First Testament prophets died out, so that would have been a few hundred years before Jesus, it was the end of a prophetic period in Israel's history, meaning God wasn't relating to them through prophets anymore. But... There was also this widely held belief that with the coming of the messianic age or when God began to make all things right again through his anointed one, there would be a special outpouring of God's spirit in fulfillment of Ezekiel 37, which is none other than the heart-pounding, soul-stirring story you might've heard before about the valley of dry bones that come back to life who walk out of the captivity of their graves and are reunited as one people under God. When the Messiah comes... They believed prophecy would flourish once again. And Peter is telling them it's happening right now. That thing you've been waiting for, that generational promise of things to come, the messianic age, it's really here. How can you deny it given what you've seen and heard from Jesus in the past and what you have seen and heard today? Joel's prophecy, as quoted by Peter, also some, has some of that cosmic disturbance stuff that makes us buttoned up uh, Christians who think that we're reasonable people a little uncomfortable at times. I'm talking about the stuff where the moon turns to blood, the solar eclipse, the fire, that all precedes the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. This prophecy from Joel, which is similar in form and style to other prophecies in the Bible, seems to be referring to two shifts in the timeline of God's story. The first shift being the dawning of the messianic age, which has already come because of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The dawning of the messianic age can also be thought of as like the beginning of the end, like the first chapter in the final installment of a must read series. We've entered the final act of the drama, but there is much drama left to unfold. And at the end of the last act, the Bible talks in several places about cosmic disturbances not unlike the ones we've actually already seen that are attendant with the other major installments of God's story, like the star at the birth of Jesus, the earthquake and the solar eclipse at the death of Jesus. And finally, as Jesus spoke about in the angels in Acts 1, referred to the return of Jesus, which has been referred to as dot, dot, dot judgment day. It sounds awful, but for believers, our reckoning has already taken place on the cross. And because of Jesus' love and sacrifice flowing from the heart of God for us, really, guys, for everyone, when our hearts are softened and we're willing to repent and receive this, What flows from the heart of God for us is a not guilty verdict that we can take to the bank. So Peter earns street cred with this Jewish audience by revealing his knowledge of the scripture and his interpretation of the times, and then he goes for the jugular. Picking up in verses 22 to 36, he does some more A-plus defense attorney explanation of the scripture to defend his understanding of Jesus' true identity, the Savior, closing with, therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, the Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Drop the mic, stare him down, wait for the reaction. And the reaction comes. They are cut to the heart. He speaks the truth, they're thinking. It's clicking for them. These, these men are not drunk. They have something we want. This Jesus really was the promised one, and we totally missed it. Okay, Peter, what do I do? Anything. Sign me up. And Peter replies, repent. The consistent message that we keep hearing. Turn from your current path of denial, of ignorance, of sin, and be baptized. Every one of you. I love this because it's it's not a group ceremony. It's an individual ceremony of commitment because every individual's commitment matters. He says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you too will receive the Holy Spirit. This new life, this not guilty verdict, this eternal life, this purpose, this shalom vision. We can be about it again because the promise is for you. And in this moment in Jerusalem, the prophesied, the prophesied dry bones of Ezekiel 37 are coming back to life. Peter says the promise is for you. It's for your children. It's for all who are far away. The thing is, Peter really doesn't even get how he doesn't even fully understand this yet. Because in a few chapters, we're going to read about how his own eyes were opened to his own ingrained prejudice towards non-Jews. The promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And just like that, 3,000 were baptized on that day. It's just like Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 12, you will do even greater works than me. Jesus never had 3,000 people come to faith in one day, but the church has been born and it is going to set the world on fire. over time this week i know the scripture is really long so maybe you'll grant me another minute or two with a few closing thoughts in his book on acts called true to the faith the late professor dr david gooding wrote they had murdered god's son he was offering them his spirit they had crucified the second person of the trinity he was offering them the third they had thrown god's son out of the vineyard in the hope of inheriting the vineyard for themselves Now he was inviting them to receive God's spirit, not just into their vineyard, but into their very hearts to be their undying life, to be the earnest and guarantee of an infinite and imperishable inheritance. God is love. And you guys, he has condescended to our level in a million ways. We've been defiant and cruel, and he's come after us anyway. We've been selfish and lazy, and he's offering us hope and help. We pursue our own justice based on our perceived offenses, and he takes our guilt upon himself and offers us his innocence. It's, it's too much, guys. It's, and it's a wonder, knowing all of this, that we can ever hold a grudge when forgiveness has been poured out so lavishly upon us for our own missteps. Jesus talks specifically about forgiveness on 12 separate occasions. He says, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. This is from Matthew chapter 6. Guys, doing the work of releasing people, releasing yourself from the prison of condemnation is hard work. I'm not here to tell you it's not. Circumstances matter. Not everything feels forgivable, but it's a heart posture towards the gospel. How can we swim freely in the generous forgiveness we received, the forgiveness we did not deserve, that changed the course of our life, that we received even while we were enemies of God and it didn't occur to us to ask for it, and yet hold others captive underwater, drowning under our own condemnation? Are our perceived offenses more serious than our offenses against God? No, not at all. God's love is bigger than ours. God's forgiveness is more generous than ours. But God's heart can become ours as we yield to the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's part and parcel with this new life we've been given through the Holy Spirit. So, my question for you today with whom do you need reconciliation? And will you take a step to venture down the hard path of forgiveness?